you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps. From the Munn Broadcast Center at KPCC, this is The Frame. I'm John Horn. On today's show, Bernie Sanders is hardly a laugh riot, but he has a lot of friends in the comedy world. Then, in Lee 1L's reimagining of the Invisible Man story, being unseen can be a metaphor for emotional abuse. If you hit someone psychologically, it's often done in such a calculated, insidious way that there's no evidence. Even the victim doesn't know that they've been hit, if you know what I mean. And the singer who goes by the name Vagabond takes us inside her song, Water Me Down. That's today on The Frame. We'll be right back. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Welcome to The Frame. I'm John Horn. Last night, just ahead of Super Tuesday, comedians Kate Berlant and John Early hosted a fundraiser in support of Democratic candidate Bernie Sanders. Here's a clip from the event. When I say Bernie, you say Sanders. Bernie! Here to talk about the event is Frame contributor Marcos Nahara. He was there, and he spoke to some of the comedians who performed and hosted the fundraiser. It was at Largo at the Coronet. Marcos, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, John. Set the scene for us. Who was there, and how much money was being raised? You know, they raised almost $20,000. Tickets were $50 a pop, and they sold out. They had two shows, the early show, complete sellout. And, you know, they had some heavy hitters. Definitely Sarah Silverman, who's been a Bernie supporter for a while. At the early show, they had Margaret Cho made an appearance. Reggie Watts was there. And, uh, you know, in both shows, you know, we had some definitely some L.A. comics. Natasha Leggero, Moisha Kasher, and Joe Mandy. I went to the later show at 10 o'clock. It was not sold out, but there was definitely a healthy crowd for Sunday night in Los Angeles. It was raining a little bit, you know, and people came out of there amped up. So when as I walked in, I was really curious to know what was going on in this space. Lots of excitement. As you can hear, it was a little bit of a pep rally. Now, I'm not going to get into my own feelings about Bernie Sanders, but I think it's (laughs) fair to say he doesn't seem to have a big sense of humor And more important, the people who support him seem to be really serious and not able to laugh about the candidate. Were there actual jokes about Bernie? There were no jokes about Bernie. Okay, proof of the point. (laughs) No, you know, it's true. I actually thought that I did wonder, you know, kind of what role comedy would play here. Would they kind of make a little light of of Theo Bernie, as people say in the Latino community? But no, there was definitely reverence for the candidate, you know, and lots of cheerleading. Uh, You know, and from Kate Berlant, one of headliner comics, her and John Early, you know, they felt that the stakes were high. Here's Kate Berlant. This is such an emergency right now. And I yeah. think that so many of the people, you know, in my world or who, who, are, who are hesitant about Bernie are people who very much kind of like, I don't know, 
John or myself or a lot of people aren't going to be necessarily affected by who becomes president. Like yeah, another so. four years of Trump, um, my life won't really change necessarily. Yeah. But for so many people, this is an absolute emergency yeah. and there's so much to lose. And you also spoke with John Early, who is one of the organizers, about his support for Bernie. What did he have to say? Well, you know, I asked them both, were they Bernie supporters from back in the day, you know, from the Hillary Clinton campaign when he was, you know, uh, going up against Hillary. And they said from early days, they've always loved Bernie. But what was interesting with John Early, he said that, uh, you know, he had a little bit of fear about being honest about his support for Bernie. I loved Bernie so much in 2016, but also had the kind of bizarre kind of internalized fear of like publicly endorsing like a democratic socialist or something like, you know, was it really fear? Are you being serious? Truly? Yeah. No, no. I never like it was actually something I was very sad about. I don't know. I felt like there. I felt scared to like not go for the kind of centrist, moderate, like obvious candidate, you know? Yeah. So you were in the Bernie closet, as it were? I was. I was in the Bernie closet. And sexually, I was also in the closet. Yeah. Yeah, I I was exclusively dating women at the time. I'm kidding. So Sarah Silverman, who was one of the comedians in the past, has been, listen, if Bernie's not the nominee, you got to move on. You got to get behind somebody else. But that wasn't really reflected last night. When Hillary became the nominee... And she was still Bernie at the time. And the Bernie, the Bernie or bus people were kind of booing everybody at the DNC convention back in 2016. She told them, you guys are being ridiculous, do you know? And so last night there was a spirit of like, we got to come together, everybody. We're talking with Frame contributor Marcos Nahara. So not any jokes about Bernie. What about other candidates like Mayor Pete Buttigieg had dropped out earlier in the day? Was he a target? Oh, definitely. I mean, that was the news of the day, right? Because we had just learned going into the shows that Mayor Pete had dropped out. And, uh, you know, I have to say they, they did they did come for Mayor Pete. And as a gay man, I, w- I did cringe a little bit because to me it was so exciting that there's a gay candidate who was running there for was, president. There, there was. was a gay candidate running for president. So maybe it was too early, but uh, they went for him. They, they called him a mouse with cheese. But John Early did say that he would play chess and Buddha judge if there's ever a film made about him. <laughs> I want to ask you about the audience. Bernie attracts some very ardent supporters. Who came out for this event? It was definitely younger people. I mean, I can tell you, I felt like one of the few people who had Ghana's gray hairs. <laughs> I definitely felt my age. But but what was interesting, it looked like such a diverse group, you know, which was surprising to see. And they were a committed group. So many people that were there had been to the Bernie rally earlier in the night at the L.A. Convention Center where Chuck D. from Public Enemy headlined. So you could tell that the creative community came out and the young people came out. So people who believe in Bernie Sanders really believe in Bernie Sanders. And yet there are a number of other people like Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden who are still running for the nomination. Was there any talk about other candidates and that it wasn't all about Bernie, but it was about the movement to get a president other than Donald Trump in the White House? There was definitely a spirit of camaraderie. I will say that, you know, there was a sense of no matter what happens, the Democratic Party needs to unify. That said, John, I have to be honest, it was pretty pointed. This was indeed a pep rally for Bernie Sanders. This is their guy. So a lot of a lot of jokes. How did the evening wrap up? You know, as much as there was laughter, there was there was a call to action. It ended on reminding people that today there's one day left before Super Tuesday and the stakes are pretty high. There's so many important primaries on Tuesday. We must do the work or else it's not going to happen. Yeah, but I think it might happen. <laughs> 
they brought out Amber Kaufman. You know, do you remember her her hit from uh, with Major Lazer? She's from uh, formerly of the Dirty Projectors, L.A. singer songwriter, and she had a hit back in the day, "Get Free." And they had her come out. It was very funny because John Early, I didn't know this. He's a comic, but he could also beatbox. <laughs> so let's listen to Amber Kaufman closing out the event. Marcos, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks, John. <laughs> And a quick note before our break, the Grammy organization today fired Deborah Dugan as its president and CEO. She had been on paid administrative leave since mid-January when a dispute between her and the board became public. They had been in talks to negotiate a settlement, but that has ended. We'll have more on the story in the coming days. Coming up next on The Frame, the writer-director behind the weekend's box office hit, The Invisible Man. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Welcome back to The Frame. I'm John Horn. In the latest cinematic reimagining of the classic H.G. Wells story, The Invisible Man, Elizabeth Moss plays a woman named Cecilia. She breaks free from her controlling and abusive husband, or so she thinks, when she's told he has committed suicide. But Cecilia soon finds herself being hunted in a way that's very hard to prove. He has figured out a way to be invisible. You know exactly what I'm talking about. He's not dead. I just can't see him. Moss's character is brutalized, but not believed. And the themes of abuse and gaslighting echo some of what the Me Too movement has brought sharply into focus. Director and screenwriter Lee Wanell says all of that came later. First, there was a casual meeting with executives at Universal Pictures. It wasn't like they brought me in and said, "Um, now listen here, Lee. We are really thinking of you for the Invisible Man. This is a big. It was. It was brought up the way you would bring up the Dodgers. You know. Ah, how about the Dodgers? Can you believe it? Like it was just like. Yeah. What do you think about? Uh, you know, say the Invisible Man. You know, is that something? And actually, one of them said, "Well, it's a hard character to write because if he's the good guy, who's the bad guy?" And I said, "Well, no. I. I he. He's not the good guy. He's the bad guy." And they said, "So what would you do with it?" And again, very nonchalant, not thinking much of it. We're, we're still discussing the weather. I was like, I guess I would tell the story from the point of view of the victim. And then I finished the conversation. We shook hands. I walked out of there and I was like, well, that was a nice conversation about the weather and the Dodgers and, and the invisible man. And then it's like, you know, the phone. That was a very old school. For radio, I did the I like phone. That. It was, very it, was very, it was a It was a rotary phone, but that was my... My mobile and and it rings. It's like bzz, bzz, that was better. And it's my agent, and he's like, "So they love your take on the Invisible Man, and they really want you to do this." <laughs> and you were just making it <laughs> yeah, up. Yeah, I'm like, wait, wait, what? They love they. And uh, the next thing I knew, I was I was writing the film. So as you're writing, there's a lot going on in the world, and there's a lot going on in the world in Hollywood, and it's about women being believed after they have been discredited and told that they are not telling the truth. So at what point do you start thinking that this fictional story is in some ways 
reflecting what's happening all around you in the business. I thought, well, I've got to tell the story from the point of view of his victim. That's that's how I make the character scary, is to see the character through the eyes of the person being stalked by him. Each screenwriting decision leads to another. And so that from that, it's like, okay, so it's a woman, she's escaping a relationship. And then from that, as I was writing, I noticed that the script was moving in that direction, and I just followed it. And I, I realized that invisibility is a great metaphor for a woman trying to prove that someone is being abusive towards her, that someone is manipulating her. Because manipulation, psychological manipulation and abuse, is invisible, right? If you hit somebody, you leave a trace, there's a bruise, and there was an act that occurred. There is evidence that can be proven. If you hit someone psychologically, it's often done in such a calculated, insidious way that... There is no evidence. Even the victim doesn't know that they've been hit, if you know what I mean. And so I was like, wow, that's invisibility, isn't it? And so once these things start stacking up, you realize you have a direction and you just write towards it, you know? I want to ask you about how you translate those ideas into a visual language. The opening shot of this film is Cecilia, who's played by Elizabeth Moss, and she's in bed with her husband, Adrian, played by Oliver Jackson Cohen, and his hand is on her, and it's unclear if it's resting there or if he's holding her Mm. in terms of how he's possessing her and how she is trapped in this house. So when you start thinking about what the camera shows and how this character feels she has no agency to escape the life she's in, what does that mean visually? Well, for me, you know, in that opening scene, I wanted it to be dialogue free, no dialogue. So all of a sudden I have to communicate a lot through visuals alone. And I'm not doing a five minute scene where you get to know these people. I just wanted to drop the audience right in there. So how do you tell the audience what's going on without saying a word? To me, the way to do it is is with that symbolism. Like to me, that hand that was draped over her was a symbol of how he was, even while asleep, he's controlling her and locking her in. She actually had to drug him to be able to lift his hand off her. If she hadn't have drugged him, he would have woken up. And then the house itself had to become a character. I wanted it to be a beautiful prison and shoot it in a way where it's that thing where on the surface it looks expensive and slick, but then when you dig a little deeper, you're like, wow, this is like a fortress. It's a prison with these rooms and... And it's, and it's covered with cameras. like So all that stuff, all these little decisions you make, it's all in service of communicating the story. Um, and I did get the note along the way, including when we were doing test screenings. We need to see more. We need to open this movie with a scene between them, you know. And I just thought... About the abuse. About yes. how she is trapped in this marriage. Exactly. And so it's like, then we'll know what she's running from. And my answer to that was always no. We'll know what she's running from just by watching her face and by seeing, by seeing this house and this environment. You, we don't need to have that scene. We'll already know what she's running from. At least that was the hope. And that's what I would tell people. Directing is a lot of false confidence. You use these phrases like, the audience will know. But really, on the inside, you're like, Jesus Christ, I hope the audience knows. <laughs> I hope they figure it out. <laughs> I hope they figure it out. We're talking with Lee Wanell about his new film, The Invisible Man. People who know your filmmaking would not say you've done a lot of romantic comedy. You've done <laughs> a lot of genre films. 
what does genre give you to tell a story about relationships and about a woman who can't escape a bad marriage? I think the horror genre has always been an amazing Trojan horse for social issues. What What is the horror genre about, right? It is about society expressing their anxieties. That's how we get our anxieties out. We go into a theatre. The whole world is filled with these frightening issues. I mean, look at the world right now. All you have to do is jump online and it's coronavirus. It's, you know, North Korea building nukes. Like, it's, it's nerve-wracking and anxiety-inducing to think about the possibility of contracting coronavirus. So I'm, I'm going to bet, let's make a bet right here, and I'll come on the show in a few years and you can call me on it, right? In the next couple of years, you're going to see a horror movie that reflects coronavirus. It'll be a heightened version of it, so it'll be this flesh-eating disease that turns people... But the, what the movie is about is that. And so I feel like horror movies have always done that, and I think, and I think this movie just happens to reflect this moment that we're living in. There are two moments in this film, and I won't explain them. One involves a ladder, one involves a restaurant that are diabolically frightening. <laughs> do those scenes come to you visually? Do you write them? How do those scenes present themselves as you're creating this story? It's usually visually. Like, um, I'll ask myself a question, and the answer will be that scene. Like, for instance, in the restaurant scene, I actually wrote down in my notepad, what's the most shocking thing that an invisible person could do? And the answer was that scene. We have one clip from The Invisible Man. Let's listen to it. James! 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 Uh, yeah, what, what, what happened? What happened? What? I saw some things. It was right there. It was right there. There were footprints. I saw it. You saw, you saw, saw footprints? I, yes, I saw them. The sheets. I saw it right there. I saw them. I'm going to ask you about getting inside the mind of Cecilia, Elizabeth Moss's character, and the challenges to do that and whether or not that something is more difficult for a male filmmaker than a woman might be. Well, when I'm writing screenplays, I I don't think about whether it's a, a, a woman or a man. Like I just try to write the best characters and I feel comfortable writing female characters. This one had an extra layer of sensitivity because of the issues involved. And I spoke to a lot of female friends of mine when I was writing the script, but I do think a tiny part of me was thinking, am I qualified to tell this story? This should be a woman uh, director. This should be a female screenwriter telling this story. But then I met Elizabeth Moss and she became my partner in crime. Like She was the one who gave each scene her stamp of approval. We talked about the scenes for hours and we would break the dialogue apart, put it back together. And she just made little additions here and there. Just to make it truthful, she was so generous with that, with just saying like, oh, you see this scene here? I'm thinking this isn't quite right, that she freaks out so quickly. And I was open to it because I was I was worried about what you mentioned. I didn't want anybody pointing the finger at me and saying, you're not the right person to tell this story. This is a movie ultimately about a woman overcoming her abuser. And it's coincidental that it's coming out a week after Harvey Weinstein went to prison do you think this is ultimately a story about how, even if you're not believed at first, you can prove it's true and have the last word? I think so. I mean, I wanted to write a film where somebody found their strength. Like the, there's this screenwriting adage, you know, put your protagonist up a tree and throw rocks at them. And so I, I just put this character through the ringer. 
you get attached to your characters when you're writing. And and I really felt for this woman and I, I was really making her suffer. And I was like, the greater the suffering, the greater the catharsis, you know, when somebody overcomes the thing. And I don't know about the wider world, but certainly for this character, it is a story about her saying, if I find the strength within me, I can get through this. I can bring the world to my point of view. Lee Wanell's film is called The Invisible Man. It's in theaters now. Lee, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Coming up on The Frame, a session from the Song Exploder podcast with a singer who goes by the name Vagabond. Harole is your connection to Los Angeles. Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding. It's politics. It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And it's food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just everything we love about LA. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to The Frame. I'm John Horn. When Leticia Tamko began making her second album under the name Vagabond, she really wanted to produce the entire thing on her own, even though she didn't have a lot of experience. On the song Water Me Down, Tamko actually had a co-producer, Eric Littman. It's the one exception to her otherwise entirely self-produced album. In this excerpt from the Song Exploder podcast, she breaks down how she and Littman produced the song and why it was worth making the exception. Hi, I'm Leticia Tamko, and I make music as Vagabond. I was at my friend Eric Littman's house in Bushwick, New York. He is someone who has been really supportive of my journey as a producer During the winter, every Wednesday, we would get together and make music. So we were in his very small bedroom. And the plan was to demo a Vagabond song that I had started writing a few days earlier. And then he showed me the synth line that he had started working on for another project. I heard it and I was like, oh my God, what is that? this song (laughs) and so I asked him if I can hop on it and just do some vocals so he gave me the room for 30 minutes and you know immediately I had an idea for um, melodies and lyrics oddly enough I I had just gotten off the phone with someone I was dating at the time and it was the most infuriating phone call that I had been on in a long time. And I think I had this epiphany moment where I was like, wait, I don't need any of this. I'm not in survival mode. I don't need anything that doesn't serve me or make me feel good. I need more. I was having this conversation in Eric's room. So as soon as I got off the phone, I had just had all these things that I wanted to say to the person. And so I sat on his bed with the microphone to my mouth and I just sang the entire song. Never meant to be you, never meant to be me, never meant to be us. It was very much like I wish I said it on the phone, but I used those feelings very much in the moment and that's why it came pouring out. I was just in it. 
in a time when you don't know how to communicate with someone, it has served me well in my entire career so far to put those messages that I wish I can have with people into songs. Never meant for all of this, never meant for you to love, never meant for you to trust. After that, I started to work on the drums. Eric and I made our own samples. The only electronic drum is the kick. Everything else was recorded in the bedroom. We attract some snare in his bedroom with brushes. On the snare, I threw in two tape delays to kind of have that like dancey house beat. The hi-hats are live hi-hats. I consider myself a student and I've always liked electronic music, R&B music, dance music, but making it has never felt accessible. With this album, it's at the intention of working on being a good producer. I wanted to have the experience of making an album be one where I'm learning something and practicing a skill. I like to have a practice. That's Oliver Hill on viola. He made this three-part harmony that's very mournful. I wanted these strings that sound sad if you isolate them. If you isolate the strings and the vocal, you have a whole different song with these lyrics that are really raw and emotional and ending. It feels like an ending. You know me better than that. You know I hate it like that. It really waters me down. But within the context of the beat, you have a whole nother world because the instrumental feels like a beginning. That is exactly what that phone call felt like. <laughs> and so I really wanted to chase that. I wanted to express the triumph of feeling this thing, but not feeling like it's the end of the world. You know me better than that. You know I hate it like that. It really waters me down. You know me better than that. You know I loved you like that. It really waters me down. Water me down, it means to be diluted, like someone taking away from the pure concentration of a person. And so the way that I'm using it in the song is this really dilutes everything that is good about me. This was a very specific time in my life too, really coming into who I am going to be. And this person just didn't fit the mold. And so I had this like breakthrough moment and I wasn't sad. This was not an ending that was sad. Do you know if the person who you were talking to on the phone ever heard the song? Um, I don't know for certain, but I'm positive. <laughs> I'm sure of it. <laughs> Almost immediately, I was like, I know he's going to hear this, so that's perfect. <laughs> you know, a little petty behavior turned into a pretty good song. <laughs> You can hear a longer version of that session with the singer Vagabond at songexploder.com. 
And that'll do it for today. I'm John Horn. Thanks for listening. We're back here tomorrow at the Moan Broadcast Center. Never meant to be you, never meant to be me, never meant to be us. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events.